Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. As Darren said, my name is Paul. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors at Stafford Baptist Church, just down the road off of Route 1. It is a joy to be with you all this morning. Well, this morning, as you got ready to come, I'm sure some of you opened the newspaper, maybe you scrolled through Facebook or your favorite news site, or you turned on the news channel on TV, and what you likely saw as you did that was more often than not, negative news. The reality is news of current affairs is predominantly negative. This is not on accident. A 2019 uh, cross-cultural study revealed that people have a greater physiological response, that is a, a very natural human response, to negative news. So we as humans give more weight to negative information than we do to positive information, which means that we're more likely to watch or read or click on negative news stories, which means that those who produce our news stories are going to be more likely to produce negative news stories. But we don't just have a production of bad news from, from those outside of us. Each of us this week or recently in the last couple of weeks have probably experienced some sort of bad news. A loved one got sick. A friend lost a job. We didn't get the response that we wanted to when we told our friend something. As we look around, more often than not, bad news surrounds us. And that has an effect on our lives, a shaping effect on our lives. How we, how we live is affected by the, the constant bad news, negative news that we're getting uh, hounded with. It looks like fear, anxiety, panic, despair. And the reality is that we are in need of good news. But what we are in need of is, is more than just a, a site, a news site devoted to good news. So if you remember during the pandemic, John Krasinski, one of the actors in the, in the office, or well known for that, uh, produced uh, sev seven or eight episodes of something he called Some Good News Network. And that was his way. We're just going to fill your timelines up with good news is what, is what his aim was. But we need more of that. We need more than that. We, we don't need just good news told to us. We need good news that can save and transform us. And this is where we find the Israelites in Isaiah chapter 40. They are exiled, right? They've been taken out of Jerusalem to a foreign land. And even worse, the glory of the Lord has departed the temple. As you all have been considering from the book of Lamentations, these people are overwhelmed by despair and disappointment. Their own sin has led them to, to be rejected by God and have them sent out. And there's questions like, will God forsake us forever? Will his promises remain? And that's where the good news of Isaiah 40 comes into play. So if you have your Bibles, please open there. Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 17. See, the good news of Isaiah 40 is that God has not forsaken them. We saw in verse 1 a couple of weeks ago that the Lord announces comfort. And we see ways in which he comforts his people. And then we saw last week that God assures us of his comfort and the, the, the reliability of his word. And now he comes in verses 9 through 17 to bring comfort. This is, in fact, the good news of Isaiah chapter 40. Behold your God. So let me read that for us and we'll consider what Isaiah prophesies, starting in verse 9 of Isaiah chapter 40. 
Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The word of our Lord. Well, if we were to boil this passage down into a one-sentence summary, it might be something like this. God brings comfort by revealing his glory as the only king who rescues his people. God brings comfort by revealing his glory as the only king who rescues his people. This whole chapter, indeed, this whole section of scripture from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 55 is called the book of comfort. You've already considered this, how the Lord comforts his people in verses 1 through 5, and the assurance of God's comfort in verses 6 through 8. And this morning, what we see is how the Lord achieves this comfort. And he does it through revealing himself. What we need in light of the bad news that surrounds us and the, the, what that cultivates inside of us is brought through God revealing himself. It's not looking to idols or other news sites. What we need is the revealing of our God. We need to behold your God. This is how God brings comfort, by revealing his glory as the only king who rescues his people. This is what we see in in verse 9. So look back down with me. The good news is the revealing of our God. That's what we see there in verse 9. He says, O Jerusalem, O, O Zion, herald of good news, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. The good news is the revealing of our God. This is what we saw in Isaiah 40, verse 5, where we read, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. The hope for the people in exile was that they were going to journey back to Jerusalem, to the cities of Judah, and what they were going to see there is is the glory of God returned. And they could be so sure of this. The reliability of this promise was so sure that they were to shout this news from the rooftops. This is what we see 
right? When he says, go on up to a, a high mountain to, to climb as high as you can and shout it with your, your voice lifted up. To fear not, but to declare this good news. One of my favorite things about uh, the labor and delivery room at Mary Washington, where all my children have been born, is that whenever a child is born, within that, that floor, that third floor, a lullaby is played. And you, yeah, you can't hear it. Is it the whole hospital? Yeah, the whole hospital. The, this lullaby is played. You can't miss it. So as you're walking through the hospital, what you're going to hear is every time this good news of a child arriving, a lullaby is being played. This is what the people were to do. They were to shout this good news. The exiles were not to miss it. God was coming again. They were not to fear, but to proclaim to the other exiles. This good news was so good that they could not hide it. And they were to announce this news to, to the other exiles. It wasn't just the, the responsibility of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or these other prophets in this, in this time of exile. No, it was the people of God. There in verse 9, O Zion, O Jerusalem, this is the city, the, the people of God were to be the proclaimers of this good news. So brothers and sisters, this should encourage you. We too, like the people in Isaiah's time, are to fear not. You need not quietly whisper the good news of the gospel. If you are a Christian, you are equipped with everything you need to proclaim this good news, to climb up high and tell all that you know of this good news. It's in fact our commission. This is what we are to do as the people of God, to teach others and to proclaim, to be heralds of this good news. And to do that, not resting in our ability, but in the goodness and in the sureness of the message. This is why Isaiah goes where he starts. He starts with, with both the announcement of comfort to us, and then in verses 6 through 8, the assurance of that comfort, so that by the time we are called to be herald of those, that good news, we have every reason to do it, not because of our ability, but because of the sureness of God's message. So friends, how are you participating in that? How are you being a herald of good news? Are you aware of those around you who need this good news, whose lives are filled with anxiety and despair? But what was this good news? We see it there at the end of verse 9. Behold your God. This is the message of the gospel. To see, to look upon God. The NIV translates it this way. Here is your God. This is what the good news is, that God has come, that he has revealed himself to his people. This is, this is the good news at its heart, that, the, that God reveals himself. The bad news is we, we, have, we want nothing to do with God. We are blind to his glory, and we are content in our blindness. But the good news is that he has shined on us, that we might see him and behold him, that he has come in such a way that we may now see him in all his glory. This is what we need, friends. We don't need just good news stories. We don't need just to do good deeds. What we need is to behold our God. The question remains, well, how has then the Lord revealed himself? Who is this God that we are to set our eyes on? Who has come and revealed himself to us? 
Well, this is what we see really in the rest of Isaiah chapter 40 that you'll be considering over the next few weeks. But let me just highlight a few things that we see particularly here in verses 10 through 17. I'm going to highlight three ways that God reveals himself. First, in verse 10, God is the mighty king. God is the mighty king. There in verse 10, we read again the idea, Behold, that, that idea is really here being used to, to call us to pay attention. We're to, to focus in on what God is doing as, as how He is revealing Himself to us. And friends, there is nothing more important than what we believe about our God. A.W. Tozer said it this way, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so we are called here to lean in, to pay attention, to think well, to see our God for who He is. And He is a God who comes with might there in verse 10. Isaiah uses both Yahweh and Adonai, two Hebrew words that, that really reflect that He is the, the covenant King, the, the Lord, Yahweh being the way that the Lord has revealed Himself to His people in covenant, and Adonai being that He is mighty King, Lord. This is the God of Israel who is Lord and King, and this God is mighty, strong, and powerful, meaning that He will accomplish all that He sets His eye and, and plan on. It's described that His very arm rules for Him. He is mighty that, that he can do all that he needs with, with one arm. This is his, his strength. But this language of arm is, is even more interesting. The, the arm of God language is used often to symbolize God acting to save his people, and in particular, his acting to save his people from Egypt. This is what we read in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, where the Lord's telling Moses, this is, this is what you are to say to the people of Israel. Say, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm in great acts of judgment. I think as the people of God are entrapped by these foreign nations again, who are much stronger and mightier than them, that the Lord is revealing himself as mighty and he's calling upon the language of the Exodus as a reminder for the people, I've done it once, I will do it Again, God reveals himself through calling on us to remember his past, past act of salvation. See, one of the ways that God reveals himself is through recalling to our minds what he has already done to save us. As a pastor, one of my favorite things to be able to do uh, is membership interviews. In fact, I was just doing one right before I came here. It's where we sit down with a potential member and we just talk about what the Lord has done in their life. And, and I've got to do that three times this week. And it was a glorious reminder, each of them unique, how God had brought them out of something into Him. Each of the stories, wonderful retellings of what, the God, what God had done. And God uses that recalling us of, of, that, of those stories to remind us how mighty and powerful and able to save he is. He says to us, don't forget who I am, the almighty, victorious king. There's a hymn called God, Omniscient God, All-Knowing. And in the third verse, the, the first couple of lines go like this. God, omnipotent and mighty, inexhaustible his strength. Governments and fleeting powers melt 
before his majesty. For this is the God that we are to see here in Isaiah 40, verse 10. He is the mighty God, the inexhaustible one. His might never grows weary. He is always almighty and all-powerful. Or as my kids love to sing, my God is so big and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. I wonder, friends, do you believe that? Or do your circumstances in life seem to drown out that God is mighty, that he is able to do what he has promised to do? Does it seem too impossible for God? Salvation seemed too impossible to the disciples. And what does Jesus tell them? What is impossible for man is possible for God. The rescue which seemed so improbable for the Israelites was going to be brought about by the Almighty God. But not only was he going to rescue them, he was going to establish his kingdom. That's what we see in the second half of verse 10. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. The God who is mighty is also king, who judges with equity. He is mighty to reward his servants and punish his enemies. And there is no one or nothing that falls outside of his reign. As a church at Stafford Baptist, we've been considering Matthew 24 and 25, which is Jesus' teaching about the return of, of, of his return, where he will return as king to judge And we have been reminded over and over again that when he returns, every nation, every tribe, every person will come before him and he will go from some to the left and some to the right. Friends, there is nothing that falls outside of the reign of this God. He is strong and mighty, powerful and conquering. And so, brothers and sisters, there is no sickness that he will not undo on that last day. There is no evil that will befall you that he will not make right when he returns. There is no truly good deed that he will not reward on that last day. He is mighty king. And this is good news for us who are weak and frail and often failing. But he comes not just in strength and might. He comes as gentle shepherd. That's what we see secondly Our God is the God who is the gentle shepherd. So he is mighty king in verse 10, and he is gentle shepherd in verse 11. See, in verse 10, we're told he is able to deliver us. But our doubts continue to say, will he deliver us? Sure, he's able to deliver, but will he deliver? How can we be sure that this mighty God will deliver weak and frail and failing sinners? Let's look at verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Three times we read this, he will. The truth is that not only is God able, but he is willing He is willing not only to mightily rescue and redeem his people, but he is one who will deal tenderly with his people as gentle shepherd. We see four illustrations of this gentleness in in verse 11. First, that he will tend the flock like a shepherd. God calls upon this 
this very common work back in, in that society of shepherding. As the shepherd, the shepherd would know his flock well. He'd know its needs. He'd know the, the, the strong sheep and the, the weak sheep. To tend the flock would be to, to protect them, to feed them, to nourish them, to care for them. And Isaiah, as, as he repeats this message of God to the people, is saying that this is how God will deal with you. That he knows your needs. He knows your heart and its longings. He is not surprised by your struggles. He is not overwhelmed by your sin. He is not unable to protect you. But rather, He is tending to you, constantly watching over us, nourishing through, the, through His Word and through His people. God tends the flock like a shepherd second illustration is not only does he tend, but he will gather the lambs. So he tends the flock, he cares for them, he nourishes them, but he not only tends, he gathers. That is, he, he pursues those who go astray. We saw in verse 10 the language of arm as God's might and power, and here we see God's arms in, in gentleness, that by his arm he rules, and by his arm he gathers gently the lambs, like holding them. And I think this teaches us, brothers, that the amazing, brothers and sisters, the amazing sort of wide range of God, that he is both almighty and tender. You know, as humans, we always have a leaning. I, I, I might be harsher or, or someone else might be more gentle. And, and where we lean means that we're weaker on the other side. So, so if I'm kind of a harsher person, I'm not as gentle when it calls for gentleness. But that's not God. God is both perfectly firm and harsh when he needs mighty ruler, but he's also tender shepherd who pursues the lambs and gathers them to himself. At times, as we read in Zechariah 13, he will strike the shepherd and scatter the sheep. And at times, as we see in Matthew 18, he will leave the 99 to come after the one. God is both mighty ruler and tender shepherd. Not only will he gather the lambs in his arms, but he will carry them in his bosom. That is, not only does he pursue us, but he welcomes us in. He carries us to where we, we need to go. See, when, when a shepherd finds a herding sheep, he doesn't pick it up and say, okay, now walk home. No, he would pick it up. He would carry it to where it needs to go. And this is what God did for the Israelites in their wandering. Before they got to the promised land, we read this in, in Deuteronomy 1, verse 31. And in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Here it is, right? The, the Israelites are wondering why. Because of their sin. They had rejected God, and yet God had not rejected them. He, like a father, carries his son carried them, protected them, sustained them until they made it to the promised land. He was not only fighting for them as mighty king, but he was carrying them as gentle shepherd. My family takes vacations every year to the, the mountains along the, the Blue Ridge Parkway. And one of our favorite things to do on those trips is to hike. This year we went, and I have a 16, well, he's now 18 or 19 months old, but he was 16 months old when we went on this trip. 
Did we make our 16-month-old walk the trail? Did we say, all right, Evan, get going, buddy. We'll see you at the finish line. No, of course not. We would be irresponsible parents if we did that. What did we do? Well, we got this fancy little backpack thing from a friend, and we carried him. I carried him through all the trails. For this is how God treats us. He gathers us to himself, and he carries us where we need to go. He sustains us. And you might say, well, how is God doing that? How is God sustaining us? Well, he's sustaining us through the church. How does God do this? Well, as we gather on Sunday mornings and we hear his word and we're reminded of his nature and character, we're reminded again and we're sustained for another week. As we pray for and with one another, God answers those prayers and deals with us. As we deliver meals or serve and meet needs, God is sustaining and carrying us home. He sustains us until he comes again. He will carry them in his bosom. There is nothing that these Israelites needed to do. My, my son didn't have to earn my willingness to, for me to carry him. No, God in his grace carries them in his bosom. Finally, we see in verse 11 the fourth illustration of how God is gentle shepherd that he gently leads those that are with young. The shepherd treats, right, treats those nursing sheep uniquely, gently. We read this of God later in Isaiah, that he will not quench the faintly burning wick, nor will he crush the bruised reed. So, brothers and sisters, if you are here and you feel like you are at the end of your rope, you don't know how much longer you're going to be able to hold it together. Know that your God not only comes with, with might to be able to save you, that he deals gently with you. That he does not, that he does not stomp out the, the little fic, uh, wick that's lightly burning. No, he cultivates life. God is our good shepherd. That's what we see in verse 11. As one pastor has said, he is the shepherd who leaves the 99 to find his lost and wandering one. And when he finds him, he bends down, gathers him up in his arms, and carries him all the way home. Brothers and sisters, this is how God reveals himself to us. He is tender-hearted towards sinners. God sees us in our pain, in our fears, in our frailties, and those do not push him away. Have you ever been open with someone and, and then all of a sudden the relationship kind of changed? You kind of confess, hey, this, I've really been struggling with this. And, and now they, they just kind of treat you a little differently. That's not God. God knows our weaknesses and he doesn't just throw up his hands in frustration. He doesn't see our sin and grow cold and emotionless to us. No, he moves towards us. In our deepest pains, in our darkest times, we read verse 11, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And so we hear the words of God in 1 Peter 5, 7, Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. We hear the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If God is our gentle shepherd, we ought to pray. Pray like we will sing in just a little bit. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. 
much we need thy tender care. And we can be sure that our shepherd king delights to answer those prayers. So God is not only able, but he is willing. That's what we see in verses 10 and 11. But the reality is, friends, that our doubts keep coming. We say, sure, he is able, sure, he's willing, but will not something derail him? Will not, will not something get in his way to keep him from being able to do what he has promised to do? And that's what we see in verses 12 through 17, that God is the unmatched Lord. He is the unmatched Lord. Here, the, the Israelites have been reminded, behold, your God. They've been reminded who this God is. He is mighty and king. He is gentle and shepherd. And yet, you can hear their doubts ring out. How can we be sure that God is who is able and willing to deliver us, will actually be able to. Will not Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar have something to say? How will God keep his promises? We too can say the same sorts of things. How can God overcome this or that? It seems so difficult. And we are reminded that God is unmatched. He is the all-wise, all-sovereign creator of the world, one who is totally and completely unique from all others. We see this in terms of rhetorical questions in verses 12 through 14. Verse 13, we read, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? The answer to all of those questions in verses 12 through 14 is no one else. God is uniquely alone. One who has the kind of wisdom to create the world as he did. He is unmatched in his wisdom. That means God didn't have to phone a friend in the creation of the world. He didn't need a a 50-50 option when he was deciding how many planets this universe could hold. He didn't need to ask the audience and decide where do I put the mountains and the hills. He didn't need to skip the question and come back later as he placed the oceans, and the sand. No, he is completely unique in strength and wisdom. We can trust him. And not only can we trust him, but there is no nation, no other God that is like him. This is what we see in verses 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like Fine dust. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Friends, there are about 195 nations in our world today. And yet, none of them compare to God. None of their so-called gods match this Lord. They are nothing before him, Isaiah says. The nations in that area would have likely used Lebanon's forests as fuel for for whatever they were doing. God doesn't need the forest. In fact, all of the forest in Lebanon would not suffice for the fuel of this eternal God. He doesn't need burnt offerings or beasts. All the beasts are his. These nations are accounted by him as less than nothing. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't care for the nations. We know from Psalm 8, what is man, that you are mindful of him. God is mindful of us. Rather, what Isaiah is demonstrating is that there is no one or nothing like this God. This is what you're going to see more as you move into verses 18 to the end of the chapter. 
that God is utterly unique. Verse 18, just as a preview, says this, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with Him? He is completely and totally unique and unmatched. It's easy, brothers and sisters, to be threatened by the powers of this world. What is Russia going to do next? What if AI takes over the world? What if we lose all of our freedoms as a country? The point of verses 12 through 17 is that no nation, nothing can derail our God. He will not be derailed by these empty nations. He is the sovereign king. Nothing and no one will stop him from delivering his people. So why could the Israelites trust that God was going to, to, to do what he had promised and deliver them? Because he is unmatched. He is a mighty king, gentle shepherd, and unmatched Lord. So friends, behold your God. Sit in that for just a moment. Come, let us adore him as we sung. Don't rush past this and say, oh yeah, that's, that's elementary level stuff. No, this is our only hope, that the Almighty King has come and He is able to deliver us, that the gentle shepherd has come and He is tenderly caring for us, and that the Almighty King and gentle shepherd are the same unmatched Lord whose plans will not be undone. He is totally, completely worthy of our praise, worthy of us beholding and setting our eyes on Him, undistracted by the things of this world. The question becomes, where do we look for this God? In whom has He come? Where do we behold Him? And the Bible is clear that we are to behold the glory of God in the radiance of His glory, who is Jesus Christ. This is what we saw in what we read in our scripture reading earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4-6. through 6. Let me read that again for us. We read, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, the good news of the gospel this morning is that, there, that God reveals his glory in the person and work of Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that the God who created the world, needing the wisdom of himself, shown in our hearts the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So how do we behold our God? Well, we look to Jesus. In Jesus, we see the mighty king who by his very word healed the sick and cast out demons and provided food for the thousands and turned water into wine, who healed a girl from the distance and who brought the dead back to life by his very word. But in Jesus, we also see the gentle shepherd who cared for the woman at the well, who deals gently with Peter and the other disciples in their denial of him who deals gently with sinners and sufferers 
who is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And friends, in Jesus we see the unmatched Lord. John describes it as the Word, the one who is there at the beginning, who was with God and who is God, through whom all creation comes and through whom all creation was made, took on flesh in Jesus Christ. And yet this mighty king, this gentle shepherd, this unmatched God, went to the cross in obedience to the Father. Not having sinned in his own life, but who went to the cross to take our sin upon himself. To drink the cup of the Father's wrath. To submit himself to the Father's will. And who then, dying in our place, rose again from the dead on the third day. So that all who believe in him shall be saved. The call to behold your God, brothers and sisters, is the call to look on Jesus. So if you are here and you're not a Christian, let me call you today to behold our God. As we look to this God, we see how great our failings are. We do not match him. We're not mighty like he is mighty. We are not gentle like he is gentle. We are frail and weak. We are unable to save ourselves. We have rejected God with no plan for how to to have eternal life apart from him. We need someone from outside of us, an, an alien righteousness. We need the God of the universe who created us to be in right relationship with him to come and reconcile us to himself. And this is what he's done in Jesus. He, like a mighty king, has defeated the grave in sin. He, as a gentle shepherd, has laid down his life for you so that you might be given a new heart and a new life because of his love. So behold Jesus. Turn from your sin and your rejection of God and trust and rely on Jesus for your salvation. Behold our God. Brothers and sisters, this is not just a call to non-Christians. This is the call to us as believers. This message was going to the people of God, to the exiles, to behold your God. This is what we saw, again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Brothers and sisters, you want to grow in, in living in holiness and Christ-likeness? It's not just a simple, do these few things and get there. No, it is beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are to call one another to look to Jesus, to see the mighty king and gentle shepherd and unmatched God. We are to shout it from the rooftops in all of our conversations, in all of our times together. We are to point people to behold your God. So let me very practically encourage you, brothers and sisters, when this service ends, before you leave, Talk to someone, and as you're talking to them, encourage them with something about who Jesus is. Remind them about the character or nature of our God as we see it in Jesus Christ. Remind one another that He is coming again, and that when He comes, He will come as mighty King and gentle shepherd and unmatched Lord. Remind each other to set your hope there, to set your eyes. And until we get there, to call out to those who are Christians and those who are not to behold your God who comes to bring comfort through the revealing of himself as the only king 
who delivers. Let me pray for us. Mercy and grace that you have as a shepherd pursues lost sheep. That you are able of sin and death because you are the mighty king. And that, Father, we are sure that you are able to do this because there is nothing and no one to derail your like a sheep until you call us home. 